The opinions and views expressed in the OC Show with Cameron Jackson do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Orange County, are you ready? It's time. For the best damn radio show in all of Orange County. What's it called? The OC Show! Right here, right now, on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, once again, Cameron Jackson sits behind this microphone of truth, telling you what really goes on here in Orange County politics. And yes, while Susan Schroeder is a Chino, a Christian in name only, you can count on three things. Cameron Jackson... Here every Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. Corruption from the Schroeders. And beautiful, sunny Southern California weather, 354 days of the year. Fear not, ladies and gentlemen. While the Schroeders could care less about you, your children, or your family, Cameron Jackson is here, looking out for your best interests. Join me every week. Bam, baby. Welcome to the show. I am Cameron Jackson. This is the OC Show right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Happy to be here once again every Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. telling you what really goes on behind the scenes in Orange County politics. And boy, have we had a doozy this past couple of weeks with the Orange County DA's office. Susan Schroeder at it again, uh, taking down her political opponents as swiftly and as uh, uh, suddenly and with as much ferociousness as possible. I will be getting to that story in just a moment. It's a good one. Also, uh, if you're just joining us and you want to continue listening to this fine radio program right here on KUCI, you can do so by going to the website, KUCI.org. Click in the upper right-hand corner for your streaming audio. Also, you can go to my website, theocshow.net. That is theocshow.net. Go over there anytime you'd like. Listen to past shows. Listen to, um, well, you can see upcoming uh, shows. That's pretty much all I've got going on there these days. Interestingly enough, last week I had Orange County Supervisor John Morlock on the show. That interview has been posted on the blog, and you can also listen to two previous uh, interviews with Irvine City Council candidate Jeff Lalloway and Irvine City Council member uh, Christina Shea. Both of those are up for your listening and pleasure next week. Next week. Now, let's, before I even get to that, you know, well, you, you may or may not know this, but we had a huge blow up in the Orange County DA's office this past couple of weeks. 
And let me discuss for you what, who some of the players are. And what you need to know is that potentially one of the players, Todd Spitzer, who was fired from the DA's office, who was supposed to be the heir apparent to the DA's office, may be in studio with me next week. I'm going to hear from him next week to find out if that has been solidified or not. If it has, you will get to hear from Todd Spitzer himself about his side of the story. And so I look forward to that. I hope that that happens. Now, what am I talking about? Well, here's the situation as it stands right now in the district attorney's office. Uh, right now, our district attorney is Tony Rakakis. He just got uh, re-upped for another four years. He was re-elected. He ran unopposed. And there was a gentleman by the name of Todd Spitzer, who was at one time a uh, supervisor, board of supervisor member here in Orange County back in 2001. And then he went up to be an assembly member and was termed out of that and needed a place to land. So uh, being an attorney and uh, desiring the position of district attorney, he landed himself back at the Orange County District Attorney's Office uh, under the assumption and under the uh, what people in political circles believed to be was the uh, deal for him as he would go in, do his time, uh, be a good attorney, and uh, run through the different various uh, positions in the district attorney's office, and he would be uh, anointed the next heir apparent district attorney in 2014. Uh, when Tony Rakakis is said to uh, say that he is going to uh, term himself out. He's not termed out by rules. He's just not going to run again. Well, enter in the vicious, the virile, the... Uh, vivacious and the um, victim maker Susan Schroeder. Now, Susan Schroeder is uh, quite possibly the most ruthless, mean, um, arrogant, hard-hitting, bloodthirsty political player I have probably ever seen in my life. She is even more, uh, what's the word I can use to describe her? She is even more evil and more um, hard-hitting and more destructive and more callous than her husband, Michael J. Schroeder. Now, if you don't know who Michael J. Schroeder is, Michael J. Schroeder is an attorney here in Orange County who has a very large chiropractic insurance business. He's a multimillionaire, and he's the kingmaker here. His best claim to fame, of course, is Mike Corona. That was his man for the last 10 years. Still stands by his side, and uh, Mike Schroeder would do anything, anything to... Um, distance himself at least publicly from Mike Corona these days. He's trying to rehabilitate his image. But the problem is uh, Mike Corona keeps rearing his ugly head as being associated with Michael Schroeder. And, of course, Michael Schroeder is the kingmaker for Tony Rakakis. And Michael Schroeder is also the kingmaker for his wife, Susan Schroeder. Now, Susan Schroeder has been the spokesperson for the district attorney's office for the past, I don't know, uh, years now. It's been a long time she's been over there as the official spokesperson. She has very little trial experience. She has very, uh, to my knowledge, she has no felony trial experience. Uh, she has her position, which is now she has been elevated from chief spokeshole over there to now the uh, chief of staff. Hmm, very interesting. So Susan Schroeder gets elevated to the chief of staff position with uh, 
rumblings, ladies and gentlemen. Let me just tell you that there are, have been rumblings now within the political circles in Orange County that her ambition is to become the next district attorney of Orange County. And really, it makes a lot of sense for the Schroeders. See, the Schroeders' power derives from the fact that they used to control the sheriff. They don't control the sheriff right now. And that they control the district attorney. They control Tony Rakakis. And why is it that the Schroeders want to control the district attorney? Because they want control over the grand jury. I can't say this enough times. The Schroeder's only goal in life is to control the justice system as much as possible to shield themselves and their friends from political corruption cases. If you remember, over 10, 15 years ago now, it's probably been 15 years, we had a district attorney named Mike Capizzi who was not afraid to take on the political corruption within the Republican Party here in Orange County. As such, the political players, the power players in the Republican Party vowed never again to allow somebody like Mike Capizzi that uh, would go out and prosecute them to gain a foothold in that office ever again. Uh, Tony Rakakis has come out and he has said that he will not prosecute political corruption cases. And to date, guess what? Uh, with the exception of the political persecution of George Jaramillo and Joe Cavallo, those were associates of Mike Corona that they were trying to discredit before they could testify in the federal case against Mike Corona. If you remember, Mike Corona was convicted of... Um, Witness tampering in his federal trial. Of course, well, we'll get to that one later. So, uh, no political prosecutions by Tony Rakakis. He's the man for the job. Enter in Todd Spitzer. Now, Todd Spitzer is a wild card for the Schroeders. See, Todd Spitzer is scary to the Schroeders because, one, he actually has felony trial experience. He's actually a good trial attorney from what I've heard. He's actually done the job of district attorney versus somebody like Susan Schroeder who owes her entire job and existence to her husband. Susan Schroeder has no qualifications whatsoever to be district attorney today other than the fact that her husband is Michael J. Schroeder. And the fact that she's a Chino doesn't mean anything. Christian in name only. So, where does that leave us? It leaves us with a guy named Todd Spitzer who came in under the auspices that he was the next person to be district attorney with one little caveat, Susan Schroeder sitting there in the chief of staff position looking at the future. And while she denies it vehemently in the papers today that she is not going to run for district attorney in 2014, and in fact, Tony Rakakis has come out and said, even at the age of 71, I will be running again in 2014, even though he hasn't been sworn in for his next four-year term yet, which everybody in politics and everybody at the DA's office and everybody at the courthouses knows is a complete fabrication and lie, Tony Rakakis will not be running in 2014. Don't even believe it for one second. You've got Susan Schroeder sitting there saying to herself, I can't run against Todd Spitzer very easily because what one? Todd Spitzer has a million dollars in the bank left over from his assembly days. And number two, Todd Spitzer actually has experience being a district attorney. 
I don't. I've been a chief of staff. I've been a spokeshole, but I haven't done anything else. I don't have any trial experience. And did I mention I'm a Chino, Christian in name only? No, Susan Schroeder is not the person for the job because she would be owned and operated by her husband just like Tony Rakakis is owned and operated by her husband, Michael Schroeder. But she couldn't allow somebody like Todd Spitzer to be there. So what do they do? They concoct this wild, crazy idea that Todd Spitzer, in trying to get information from the public guardian's office, and if you want to hear about how that went down, listen to the John Morlock interview last week. It's on my website, theocshow.net. But essentially, Todd Spitzer calls up the public guardian office to get information about uh, some thing that's going on with a citizen here in Orange County. And the district attorney's office comes back, Susan Schroeder comes back, and says, uh, nope, sorry, you, you violated policy by doing that. You never should have asked about that. You should have had an investigator ask about it. That was inappropriate contact. Um, you should not, been, uh, should not have been doing any investigation. And uh, as such, you're fired. At-will employee, gone. So what do they do by doing that? Well, they discredit Todd Spitzer overnight. They take him out of play and now uh, essentially sew up the district attorney's office for Susan Schroeder. Now, barring any kind of federal indictment of Susan Schroeder or her husband between now and 2014, Susan Schroeder's got it in the bag. She'll have the backing of the Republican Party because Scott Baugh is part and parcel with that. Scott Baugh is the head of the uh, Republican Party here in Orange County. She's got, she'll have no opposition. Everybody will be afraid to run against her. Nobody in the office will run against her for fear of losing and having their um, private parts uh, decapitated, removed, however you want to say it. No. And here's what's, here, here are the two scenarios, ladies and gentlemen, that are going to happen in the next four years. Mark my words, today, uh, September 10th, 2010, the prediction is made right now. This is how it's going to play itself out, barring any uh, federal indictments by Susan Schroeder or of Susan Schroeder or her husband. One is this. Tony Rakakis serves out his full term at the end of his full term, uh, and during that term in the next four years, he elevates her not from chief of staff but up to the number two position in the district attorney's office. Good job, Susan. Way to earn that position. And so uh, elevates her to that position and then in 2014 moves on to greener pastures, leaving the door wide open for Susan to step into that position with no opposition uh, whatsoever or any opposition that's out there is uh, neutered early on and has no way of uh, overcoming that. And, of course, the lemmings here in uh, Orange County will just click on the box because she'll be, she will have been endorsed by the uh, Republican Party here in Orange County, and they've got more than enough money to run a campaign on their own, even without donors. So that's scenario number one. Scenario number two, barring any federal indictments of Susan Schroeder or her husband, Michael J. Schroeder, between now and 2014. Uh, number two is that Tony Rakakis will... Uh, do what? He'll step down in a couple of years, citing his health, citing uh, wanting a closer relationship with his kids. Who knows? Wanting to watch paint dry on the wall. I don't know. It doesn't matter. One hill of beans. 
he'll step down in the next couple of years, and he will ask to have Susan Schroeder, who is the number two position at the district attorney's office right now, uh, or by the time that happens, because he will have elevated her to that post, and he will do what? Ask for her to be appointed to the district attorney position halfway through his uh, tenure. And the Board of Supervisors will do it for him. Because why? Let's look at the makeup of the Board of Supervisors here in Orange County right now. You've got John Morlock. You've got Pat Bates. You've got Bill Campbell. You've got uh, Janet Wynn. And you've got Sean Nelson. Now, let's look at those one by one. John Morlock's a wild card. You don't know which way John Morlock is going to go. Could depend on the day that he's having. Could depend on where he's at that day. So we'll just strike him out. Remember, she needs three votes. Number two, Pat Bates. Solid Schroederite. Pat Bates will give her the vote. Number three, Bill Campbell. Well, Bill Campbell is going to be termed out soon, so it depends. But if Bill Campbell is still there, that's her second vote. He's a, he's a complete Schroederite. Number four, Janet Wynn. Now, Janet Wynn is a wild card. Here's how it could go with Janet Wynn. One of two ways. One, she wants to make nice-nice with the Schroders and get them off her back. She'll vote for Susan. Or number two, she'll say, ah, screw the Schroders. They haven't done anything for me. Forget it. I'm not voting for her. I can do it on my own. I've done it on my own this long. Or number three, number three, hey, it's an Asian thing. It's a female thing. I'll give her the vote. Frankly, I'm going to go for number one. She can gain a lot more uh, political capital for herself with the Schroders by voting yes on that. And number four, or rather in this case number five, Sean Nelson recently added to the Board of Supervisors. He replaced Chris Norby, who is now in the Assembly, uh, the musical chairs of politicians here in uh, California. Uh, Sean Nelson is clearly in the uh, Republican Party's back pocket. He is clearly going to go and side with the Schroeders. Does not want to upset the apple cart. So what does that mean? It means that barring any federal indictments of Susan Schroeder uh, within now and the next two to four years, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Our next district attorney will be Susan Schroeder. How do you like them apples, baby? I mean, you can't ask for a better chess game than that. And you heard it all here, right here, September 10th, 2010. I'm going to mark this down as a, a golden moment at the OC show here at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I am Cameron Jackson, your faithful host, telling you the truth about what really goes on here in Orange County politics. Uh, if you're just joining us Todd Spitzer, who was a part of this story that I just gave you, may be in studio next week. I'm going to hear from him on Wednesday, so check my blog, theocshow.net. That is theocshow.net around Wednesday, Thursday to see if he gave me the thumbs up or a not on that. Hopefully he does. Look forward to that. I'm going to take a quick break, and after the break, we're going to talk about these, these juveniles real quick that uh, laid down on the train tracks in Mission Viejo, and uh, something very bad happened to them. And then after that, uh, another 
social issue that I want to talk about that I've talked about many times on this show when it comes to black people in America and how the Democratic Party hasn't done a damn thing for them and a little bit of stuff to back up all the things that I have said over the years. So you won't want to miss that. And uh, reference the train victims. Uh, you'll like this first PSA that I've got for them uh, today. So we'll be right back. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I am Cameron Jackson, and this is The OC Show. We'll Opinions and views expressed in the OC show with Cameron Jackson do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. That's right, baby. Welcome back to the OC Show with Cameron Jackson right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And ladies and gentlemen, don't forget, I am your Superman, baby. Yeah, that's right, baby. Tearing it up every Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. Glad to be here telling you the truth about what really happens in Orange County politics and then covering other kind of politics around the nation, around the world, around the state, wherever you might be, wherever you, whatever you might be doing, you can always listen in. You can go to KUCI.org, click in the upper right-hand corner for your streaming audio. That's KUCI.org. Also, you can go to my website anytime you'd like to see past shows, listen to past shows, see upcoming guests, all that good stuff. Go to theocshow.net. That is theocshow.net. Have a good old time once you get there, baby. You got three interviews that I've done recently, so you don't want to miss those. And next week, possibly on the show, Todd Spitzer, who was a DA, heir apparent to the DA's office, possibly going to be on the show next week. I'll let you know. Check my website, theocshow.net. Next week, around Wednesday or Thursday, I'll let you know. So, uh, if you missed the PSAs there in the beginning, I had a PSA about, um, what was it about? It was about a train. Don't beat the train, baby. Well, heck of a story here in Orange County. I don't normally do news stories much anymore on the show because they're kind of boring most of the times. And the news that happens here, if it is good, well, I'll talk about it. But for the most part, I don't really talk about these kinds of stories. But this one's a good one because it's Darwinism at its finest right here. Uh, Mission Viejo from yesterday, Sylvia Lua missed being killed by a Metrolink train by less than a second. The 27-year-old and her two friends, this is from the Orange County Register, Daniel Atkins, 22, and Anastasia Bolton, 17, had spent most of Wednesday night out meeting up near a Santa Ana bar and walking along Laguna Beach. Apparently, they had been drinking quite a bit, although no evidence of drinking was found near the tracks. But anyway, I'll digress for a moment. The trio drove to Mission Viejo, and while waiting for a call from a friend, walked down to a stretch of Metrolink tracks underneath an Alicia Parkway overpass. Early Thursday morning, Atkins and Bolton were killed by a Metrolink train that passed through the same tracks. 
Lua, as she explains to a 911 dispatcher, narrowly missed being killed. Investigators said they are still trying to piece together what led to the death of the two friends. Some of the answers officials said rest in the 911 call that Lua made minutes after her friends were killed. She said to them, she told the dispatcher, we were just doing an adventure type thing. As she tries to tell the dispatcher where she is, she goes down the sequence of events trying to understand what happened. Officials said the three walked down to the tracks and talked in the dark. The three then laid down on the steel tracks. I don't know where I'm at, Lua told the dispatcher. I was with my friends and they were lying on the train tracks and I passed out. And I, the train passed by me and I got up and it hit my arm. Lua tries to tell the dispatcher where she is, but she doesn't know. She's lost. When deputies arrived, articles, shoes, and clothing littered the 700-foot area around the tracks. Lua told investigators the three did not drink at the bar where they met up. Lua is still being treated for moderate injuries she suffered when hit by the train. Amarino said Lua is believed to have laid perpendicular to the tracks, and in a moment of brilliant Darwinism... She got up just before the train sped through, although Bolton and Atkins are believed to have laid down inside the tracks. Why the friends decided to walk down the tracks is unknown, Amorino said. The case is still under investigation. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, you know, I know this is going to sound extremely mean and not very um, nice, but we have had a great favor given to us today. And I'll tell you why. One, we have wiped the earth of two, I'm sure, very nice individuals. I'm sure they were very sweet people that just made a mistake. But when it comes to Darwinism, ladies and gentlemen, we really have to have survival of the fittest if we want to get anywhere as a species. And this, ladies and gentlemen, was survival of the fittest. That those two people, uh, Mr. Atkins and Mrs. Bolton, uh, were silly enough with their friend Lua to drink or do drugs or whatever it was they did because obviously they had some foreign substance inside of them that uh, led them down to the tracks to where they could fall asleep on the tracks themselves only to get run over in the morning despite the fact that the train was blowing its horn. Uh, just goes to show you that sometimes Darwinism is a good thing. We don't have to worry about... Mr. Atkins or Mrs. Bolton procreating, creating more little Boltons and Atkins around to pollute the gene pool with their idiocy. And maybe Lua will learn a little something from this, the fact that she survived by sleeping perpendicular to the tracks rather than right in the middle like her good friends. Who the hell knows why they were even there in the first place, other than the fact that I'm sure they were stoned or drunk off their rear ends. So... Uh, I can solve that one for you right away. First, they were stupid. Second, they were drunk or high. Or both. Hey, so uh, end of investigation. I don't even think they need to do toxicology reports at this point in time. I mean, we, we already know what the conclusion is. So there you go. I don't normally do those stories, but that one is a doozy. Who the heck would have imagined such a thing? But, hey, it happens. So let me get a little drink of my water here. Take a moment, second. All right. If you have been listening to this show for any length of time, 
you know that I really do get on the soapbox when it comes to issues of the Democratic Party, liberals and black America, and how it perplexes me to no end that black America consistently votes Democrat when the Democrats have done nothing but crap all over black people for the last 50, 60 years. Uh, you know, it was Republicans that actually freed the slaves, but I digress for a moment. Why should I even go there? Why, why bring that up and ruin the moment here? And I always try to cite things like uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson and his uh, war on poverty and affirmative action and how those um, issues, those items right there destroyed the black family, uh, tore it apart, made the black uh, man irrelevant in black families because women could make it on their own with welfare, uh, and the black man just disappeared from the family. And as we can see today, we have uh, black women who have multiple kids, uh, no father, multiple fathers. Their fathers are imprisoned. Uh, what do they say? Like a quarter, uh, a quarter, almost half the black male population between a certain age, what is it, like 18 and 25, is incarcerated right now. Uh, and really, you don't see that population making any gains. All the other populations, if you look at demographics between now and 2050, every demographic in America makes positive gains with the exception of black America. Black America stands at 12% of the population, and by 2050, uh, they will stand at 12.1% of the population. And, you know, it's funny because... uh, Democrats and liberals and socialist, secular, uh, progressives, whatever you want to call them, always point the finger at conservatives and Republicans and call us the racists uh, and the ones that are holding the black man down, when in reality it is liberal policies from the past, well, since the 1960s, you can maybe even go back to the 50s, but at least the 1960s, the last 50 years, that have destroyed the black family and the black culture in America. And yet they vote overwhelmingly for Democrats over and over and over again when those are the very people that keep them down. Well, George Will touched on this in a recent um, thought piece, and I want to read it to you because it's very good. And it talks, I mean, George Will is a very uh, well-respected columnist here in America. And, of course, he's a conservative pundit, but he knows what he's talking about. He's been around the block. And this is beautifully illustrates what I have talked for years about on this program. Daunting Divides in Achievement and Family Life by George Will. Various figures denote vexing social problems. They include 10,000, the number of new baby boomers eligible for Social Security and Medicare every day, 10.2%, what the unemployment rate would be if 1.2 million discouraged workers had not recently stopped looking for jobs, 9.9 trillion, the Government Accountability Office calculation of the gap between expected revenue and outlays for state and local governments during the next 50 years, and $76.4 trillion, the GAO's similar estimate of the federal government's 75-year fiscal shortfall. These are, ladies and gentlemen, these are very striking numbers. Shortfalls for state and local of $9.9 trillion, and for the federal government, a 75-year fiscal shortfall of $76.4 trillion. Follow me, will you, please? 
Remedies for these problems can at least be imagined, but America's tragic number, tragic because it is difficult to conceive remedial policies, is 70%. This is the portion of African-American children born to unmarried women. It may explain what puzzles Nathan Glazer. 70%, ladies and gentlemen, of African-American women, black American women, have children that are born to, um, excuse me, 70% of black children are born to unmarried women. That is a huge number. Writing in the American Interest, Glazer, a sociology professor emeritus at Harvard, considers it a paradox that the election of Barack Obama coincides or coincided with the most complete disappearance from American public life of discussion of the black condition and what public policy might do to improve it. There you go right there. What have I talked about time and time again on this program? Public policy is what got black people into the position that they are in today. Who enacted that public policy Democrats, liberal socialist progressives, enacted that policy, which is where and why black people in America are where they're at. Let's continue on. This Glazer is the black condition. This is Glazer now describing what the black condition is. Employment prospects for young black men worsened even when the economy was robust. By the early 2000s, more than a third of all young black non-college men were under the supervision of the correction system. More than 60% of black high school dropouts born since the mid-1960s go to prison. Mass incarceration blights the prospects of black women seeking husbands. So does another trend noted by sociologist William Julius Wilson. In 2003-2004, for every 100 bachelor degrees conferred on black men, 200 were conferred on black women. You know, I've noticed that, too. When you look around at government jobs, which are populated largely by minorities, because government agencies want to look like they are diverse, even though their populations might not be, what do you see when you go to a public uh, go up to L.A., for instance. Go to any courthouse in L.A. Go to any city building in L.A., and what will you find behind the counter? A black female. Very few black males, but you will see black females out the wazoo. They are very hard workers, but they've had to become hard workers because there are no black men around for them. They are incarcerated. Because changes in laws and mores have lowered barriers, the black middle class has been able to leave inner cities, which have become, Glazer says, concentrations of the poor, the poorly educated, the unemployed, and the unemployable. Ladies and gentlemen, I worked in a black neighborhood for three years. I, you know, it is a sad state of affairs, and it was something that was done by, and I don't want to ever have anybody forget this, these are policies enacted by liberal socialist seculars, policies of the starting back to Lyndon Baines Johnson that were said to help the black person and all they've done is kept them down and yet we see black people voting consistently for the same people who have kept them down all these years Democrats unbelievable to me high out of wedlock birth rates 
mean a constantly renewed cohort of adolescent males without male parenting, which means disorderly neighborhoods and schools. I can't tell you how many grandmothers in the black neighborhoods were taking care of the grandchildren because mom, in many cases, was working or not around herself, and dad was nowhere to be found. Glazer thinks it is possible for some black men, young black men, acting white, quote-unquote, acting white, trying to excel in school, is considered, quote, a betrayal of the group culture. This severely limits opportunities in an increasingly service-based economy where working with people matters more than working with things and manufacturing. I'm going to read that sentence to you again because that is something that I have talked about on this show time and time again. And here you have somebody from Harvard backing up what I have said time and time again. Glazer thinks it is possible that for some young black men, quote, acting white trying to excel in school is considered a betrayal of their group culture. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the tragedy that occurs in black neighborhoods. I saw it time and time again, that if you made good, if you did good for yourself, the community would shun you and say you sold out to the white man. And where do they get that from? They get it from the likes of Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton, who've been riding on the backs of of, um, discrimination and of hating the white man. That's how Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson have made their name and made their money. They have done more to keep down their population to enrich themselves than they have for the good of their own population. Now, from the Educational Testing Service comes a report about the black-white achievement gap when progress stopped. Written by Paul E. Barton and Richard J. Coley, it examines the startling fact that most of the programs in closing the gap in reading and mathematics occurred in the 1970s and 80s. This means progress progress generally halted for those born around the mid-1960s, a time when landmark legislative victories heralded an end to racial discrimination. Again, what have I said on this show time and time again, and I've said it already, we can trace the failure of the black population and of the black Uh, culture to Lyndon Baines Johnson in the 1960s and here we have it right here in writing it examines this I'll I'll say it again this study the black white achievement gap when progress stopped written by Paul Barton and Richard Cooley it examines the startling fact that most of the progress in closing the gap in reading and mathematics occurred in the 1970s and 80s This means progress generally halted for those around the 1960s, a time when landmark legislative victories heralded an end to racial discrimination. Only 35% of black children live with two parents. Is that not a tragedy or is that not a tragedy? When you take, and this is me talking right now, not, the, not this. When you take a group of people and you tell them, you know what, we know you can't do it. We know you can't do it because of the color of your skin. We've kept you down all these years. We're going to help you out because even though we know you can't do it, 
we're going to give you a, a little bit of boost and um, we're, you're going to get this job even though you're not qualified for it. You don't have to work for it. You're not qualified for it, but you're going to get it anyway because of the color of your skin. And, oh, yeah, by the way, um, we're not going to fire you either. And not only that, um, women, you get all this free money, uh, and men, you really don't have any responsibility anymore because the women can do it on their own with the welfare, and we're going to put them in the projects uh, where they can uh, do their thing, and men, you just can go out and uh, have a good old time. Only 35% of black children live with two parents, which partly explains why, while only 24% of white eighth graders watch four or more hours of television on an average day, 59% of their black peers do. Privileged children waste their time on new social media and other very mixed blessings of computers and fancy phones. Black children are also disproportionately handicapped by this class-based disparity. By age four, the average child in a professional family hears about 2 million, 20 million rather, 20 million more words than the average child in a working class family, and about 35 million more than the average child in a welfare family. A child alone, often alone, with a mother who is a high school dropout. After surveying much research concerning many possible explanations of why progress stopped, particularly in neighborhoods characterized by a concentration of deprivation, the ETS report says it is very hard to imagine progress resuming in reducing the education attainment and achievement gap without turning those family trends around, i.e. increasing marriage rates and getting fathers back into business of nurturing children. And it is similarly difficult to envision direct policy levers to affect that. Thank you very much. You can't create enough policy on this planet to get people to be families. You cannot create enough. In fact, by creating more policy, by creating bigger government, by creating more of a social welfare net for people, by creating, giving them less incentive to go out and do what they need to do for themselves and their families, you make the problem worse. So, two final numbers. Two decades, five factors. Two decades have passed since Barton wrote America's smallest school, the family. He has estimated that about 90% of the difference in schools' proficiencies can be explained by five factors. The number of days students are absent from school. The number of hours students spend watching television. The number of pages read for homework. The quantity and quality of reading material in a student's home. And much the most important, the presence of two parents in the home. Public policies can have little purchase on these five, and at least of all, on the fifth. Thank you very much. What have I been saying this entire time, backed up by George Will and a study by a Harvard, a Harvard professor, ladies and gentlemen. If you're just joining us, this is the OC Show right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, closing out the show here, I've got another five minutes or so. You know, uh, tomorrow is September 11th, and I always take a moment uh, either on or about September 11th on this show to uh, take a moment to reflect on what happened that day. I do remember what happened that day. I remember I was asleep. I was woken up by my uh, partner at work. Uh, that was back when I was a cop. 
And he said, are you watching TV? And I said, no. And he said, turn it on. And I turned on the TV to see uh, one tower of the uh, World Trade Center standing there. The other one was gone. And I, like most of America that morning, was shocked and kind of in a state of daze. I, 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 it was amazing to me. I was like, are you, are you kidding me? Are you serious? And one of the things that struck me is, is so amazing about that day um, a tragic day was that they kept replaying the airplane crashing into the building, uh, the one that came in on the side there, and the fireball shot out of the side of the building. And I remember watching that and thinking to myself, man, I can't believe they got that computer graphic together so quick. I mean, that was, wow, they recreated that so quickly. And it took about three or four times for me to watch it to actually realize my God, that's actually the plane crashing into the building. And then as I stood there and they had a picture of the, bur- the, the second tower, or the first tower actually, um, the second one was the one that fell, but number one that was uh, sitting there and it was burning at the top, uh, it was in the corner and I remember all of a sudden it just collapsed. Boom. It was gone. And uh, I, I watched it live as it, as it fell to the ground. And everybody was just, I mean, it was like dead silence for a moment. And um, I had a chance, I had a chance on November 4th to go out to Ground Zero. And because I was law enforcement at the time, I was allowed to walk through uh, the, the area there and see firsthand what had happened. And it was utter des- uh, devastation. It was, it was a horrible sight. Uh, you know, it was one of those things when you got off the subway in that area, um, there's a distinct smell of uh, death. Death has a very distinct smell, and if you've been around death uh, at any point in your life, uh, you know the smell, and um, you can recall it very easily. And uh, as soon as I got off the subway, there was that smell, and uh, there was still particulate in the air. Uh, This was, you know, September, October, November. It was almost two months later, still particulate in the air, um, and there was still uh, a very... A large sense of tragedy that had occurred there and um, it was it was sad but it was also uplifting at the same time because everybody did come together and everybody was um, working together to try to get past that horrible horrible event and we can never forget uh, what happened that day 3,000 Americans were killed that day they were killed by Muslim extremists they were killed uh, in vain they were killed for you know what some think are the policies of the United States, um, and frankly, there's no real, uh, real logical excuse for what happened that day and what has unfolded in the last nine years as far as our entrance into Afghanistan and to Iraq. It's been a roller coaster for this nation, and we are going to continue to feel this for some time to come. But we can never forget what happened that horrible day on September 11, 2001, where 3,000 Americans were killed. 3,000 innocent Americans were killed. 400 of those were law enforcement and firefighters, first responders. It was a very tragic day. And, um, you know, we, uh, we uh, salute those that, that died that day uh, that were the first responders. And, um, you know, we say a prayer for the ones uh, that uh, were innocent uh, and their lives were cut short by, by nutcases. So... 
this is the OC Show right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I am Cameron Jackson coming up next half and half. And I will see you all next week on a Friday, every Friday from 5 to 6 p.m. Uh, thank you very much, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.